0: The TV fans are taking over. This is across the airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to you. Another. Episode. Across the airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, out with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan schmidt your host. Because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe. Because put up with me for 200 episodes of this show,
1: my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue the spring 2017 TV season with an episode of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, and a streaming section recommendation of Netflix's Medici's Masters of Florence. But there's no supernatural this week, as it's taking a two-week hiatus. So Michael. And Tim will be back in two weeks to cover the next episode of Supernatural. But before all that, we kick off everything this week with the News with Nico section. New Doctor Who trailer says it's time for heroes. Okay everybody, we're about a month away from 12 straight weeks of Doctor Who. Can you believe it? I'm so ready for more Doctor Who. The BBC gave us a new minute long trailer to go along with that announcement. There's a lot to unpack, but the major thrust of it is that we're gonna need some heroes. As with the last trailer, they seem to be teeing up the fact that Bill is just a fun-loving character, one without the weight of the world or galaxy on her shoulders. This will be a nice change coming off of Clara, who was fun at times but had some heavy stuff to contend with. My hope is that Bill has depth but that she also lacks the baggage of the previous companion. We already knew the Daleks would be back because they always are and we were told recently that the Cybermen and Missy would be back for the two-part finale. We also see a glimpse of a new class of Ice Warrior that Mark Gaddis told us about and we can assume that the shot earlier in the trailer of Bill and the Doctor in spacesuits saying they're on Mars is from that episode since the Ice Warriors come from Mars. In in addition to those we see what looks like what could be a weeping angel made of wood which would be immeasurably scary as well as several shots of mangle-faced eyeless monks not sure what those are all about but they look creepy so that's cool we also see a water monster and robots that look not dissimilar from the kindness robots from series 6's the girl who waited one of my favorites from that year toward the end of the trailer Nardal gets tossed what appears to be the third or fourth doctor's sonic screwdriver which would be interesting we'll find out what all of these mean very soon when doctor who premieres on saturday april 15th american gods cast emily browning in second role you might think that being cast as laura moon in the highly anticipated stars adaptation of neil gaiman's novel american gods would be enough for any actress but why settle for only coming back from the dead when you can also play a second beloved character from the book emily browning will do just that when she plays essie tregoan on the show series creator brian fuller and michael green were joined by stars browning ian mcshane and and Ricky Whittle at the South by Southwest panel on Sunday night, hosted by Variety's Elizabeth Wagmeister. It was there that they revealed that in addition to the less-than-deceased wife of Shadow Moon, Browning would also be filling the role of fan-favorite Essie Tregowin, whose life story is one of the many vignettes in the book explaining how certain gods came to America. In Essie's case, it was she who brought Mad Sweeney across the Atlantic. For those of you who have not read the book and would like to avoid any and all specifics, skip the link in the ACC feed which has plenty of spoilers in it but man this is one of the series that I am most looking forward to American Gods it's going to be awesome Legion renewed for season 2 at FX FX has renewed Legion for a second season the X-Men-esque saga from Fargo writer and director Noah Hawley premiered last month to rapturous reviews and a 1.6 million total viewers and a 0.7 demo rating and has since settled in at about a little bit more than half of that at last tally it also was enjoyed 150% demo bump via live plus 3 ddr playback An fx rep says season two's episode count remains to be determined but the eight episode first season concludes on march 29th watch this series if you have not already and catch the reviews on marvelverse later next month american gods trailer delivers us to evil brian fuller's take on neil gaiman's epic fantasy thriller novel is sure to delight and surprise longtime fans and newcomers alike but as with all adaptations with complicated and nuanced bits and bobs, there's also a chance it'll confuse the heck out of you. Thankfully, this new trailer sets its sights on shedding some light on the central problem between these old gods and the new ones on American shores. So you better buckle in, and today's your lucky day. If you follow the link in the ACC feed, you can see the trailer now. Jeff Daniels to star in Hulu's 9-11 docudrama, The Looming Tower. Jeff Daniels is returning to TV and he's not straying too far from the news. The former newsroom star has signed on to star in Hulu's upcoming 9-11 drama, The Looming Tower, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Based on Lawrence Wright's Pulitzer Prize winning non-fiction book, the series chronicles the rise of Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and how it led to the September 11th attacks. Daniels will play John O'Neill, an FBI counterterrorism expert who is convinced that Al-Qaeda is planning an attack on America. But he he's not squeaky clean either. O'Neill is juggling a number of girlfriends, none of whom know about his wife and children. Oscar-nominated screenwriter Dan Futterman is penning the 10-episode series with acclaimed documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney on board to direct. This is Daniel's first TV role since HBO's The Newsroom, where he won an Emmy in 2013 for playing news anchor Will McAvoy. He's also starring alongside Michelle Dockery and Scoop McNary in the upcoming Netflix miniseries Godless, due out later this year. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo sequel gets a director and release date. It's been a long time since we last crossed paths with Lisbeth Salander, but we won't have to wait much longer for the iconic hacker's return. First, the bad news. The Girl in the Spider's Web, based on the fourth novel, the first by David Langerkrantz, who took over for Stieg Larsson when he passed away, will not feature Rooney Mara in the title role. The good news is that Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson are both being considered to replace Mara as Lisbeth Salander. Also good, is the choice of director that Sony's made for the project, Don't Breathe's Fed Alvarez. As for the film's release date, circle October 5th, 2018 on your calendars now. I can't wait for this. I'm really bummed that Rooney Mara is not returning, but if we get somebody like Scarlett Johansson or Natalie Portman to fill the role, you know I'll enjoy it. Person of interest Jim Caviezel to star in CBS's Navy SEAL drama pilot. Jim Caviezel is coming back to CBS to play another military man. The person of interest star has signed on to play the lead role in the network's untitled Navy SEAL drama pilot. Caviezel will play Jason, the respected leader of a team of elite SEALs who has been through more than a dozen deployments. He joins a number of familiar faces already cast in the pilot, including Max Terriot, A.J. Buckley, and Neil Brown Jr., all of whom play SEALs in Jason's unit. Justified alum Ben Cavell wrote the pilot and will serve as the executive producer on the project, should it get picked up to series. Caviezel's casting is a homecoming of sorts for the actor. Last June, he wrapped up five seasons as former Green Beret CIA operative John Reese on CBS's high-tech crime drama *Person of Interest*, perhaps still best known for playing Jesus in Mel Gibson's 2004 film *The Passion of the Christ*, Caviezel also starred in AMC's 2009 miniseries remake of *The Prisoner*. I can't wait for this Reese as a Seal sounds awesome. The Matrix reboot in talks. Don't call it a reboot. At least that's what screenwriter Zach Penn says about Warner Brothers' rumored relaunch of the Matrix franchise. Penn, who is reportedly attached to the project, took to Twitter to bring some clarity to the swirling eddy of online rumors. While he cannot confirm one way or other that he is actually working on the project, he does offer some strong opinions about whether or not the Matrix can be and should be relaunched in the first place. If you want to see all the tweets and the vitriol heaped upon Zach Penn and his Twitter feed follow the link in the acc feed to the nerdist.com article and see his attempts to set the record straight all i know is that the matrix might get more movies and the internet lost its collective minds netflix is testing a skip intro button binge watchers rejoice netflix is testing out a button that lets users skip a tv show's title sequence no more watching the same minute long intro song and credits before every episode of orange is the new black netflix told cnn money on friday that some of netflix members recently began seeing a skip intro button while streaming, but wouldn't say when it first appeared. Netflix spokesperson Smita Saran said the feature is one of hundreds of A-B tests that the company conducts each year to try out new features. Netflix declined to share details about the test, including which platforms the button is available on. Viewers have mostly reported seeing it appear while streaming on computers. Saran said there's no word yet on whether the button is here to say, but social media users have been heaping praise for the skip intro feature. My account does not have it yet, so I hope to see that soon when and if it rolls out to everyone. Game of Thrones Season 7 dragons will be plane size. Remember when Daenerys' dragons were just itty bitty creatures that fit in a cage? No more. They've been increasing in size ever since Season 1, and it's not stopping. Season 7 director Matt Schachman told Entertainment Weekly just how massive these babies have become for the next season. Quoted as saying, the dragons this year are the size of 747s. Yes, as in the plane. That makes them around 230 feet long, with almost as big of a wingspan. Given that sort of scale, you can just imagine how three dragons can level huge swaths of ground or white walkers i can't wait to see that in july and discuss it all on the thrones cast each week after the episode ghost in the shell anime cast dubbing live action japanese cut when it comes to beloved characters in film and television the actor portraying them becomes just as identifiable as the fictional people themselves it's going to be weird when someone else eventually has to play wolverine because hugh jackman's take is the one that most people have in their heads the same goes for the animated realm it's why kevin conroy is still playing batman after 25 years because he's still the definitive sounding dark knight in people's heads certain characters just sound like certain actors that's why it is so beyond cool that the original japanese Japanese voice cast of the Ghost in the Shell anime will be dubbing the Japanese version of the new live action movie. The Japanese dubbed version of the American produced Ghost in the Shell will feature many of the voice actors from the film and television series anime, including Atsuko Tanaka, who played the Major in the original 1995 anime, its 2004 sequel, and the TV series Standalone Complex, will be dubbing over Scarlett Johansson's Major. There's something incredibly fitting about this, especially given the movie's theme of placing different consciousnesses in different 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 shells. Tanaka will not be the only original voice actor to appear in the Japanese voice dub. Akio Atsuka will return as the Major's burly cohort Batu, and Kochi Yamadera is back as cybernetics adverse Tagusa. As with most foreign films, there will be a version of Ghost in the Shell in Japan with the original English voice track and Japanese subtitles, but I'd suspect lots of fans would be stoked to hear their definitive versions of the characters coming out of the big budget stars. I'd even pay to hear a version of Conroy dubbed over Ben Affleck in Batman vs. Superman, for example. Anyway, this is pretty cool news for original fans of Ghost in the Shell anime. The Expanse renewed for Season 3. Sci-Fi will continue to explore The Expanse. The network has renewed the sci-fi drama for a 13-episode Season 3 slated to air in 2018. It was announced on Thursday. The series takes place across a colonized galaxy 200 years in the future when two strangers become swept up in a vast conspiracy. It is based on the book series The Expanse, written by Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank under the pen name James S.A. Corey. The Expanse is a gorgeous, thrilling, emotional series that has quite simply raised the bar for science fiction on television and quite frankly i'm a little bit surprised that the by the production value for a sci-fi series these days NBC usually does not fork over enough money to pay for good series like this but with the expanse and the magician sci-fi hit the mother load the show's second season is currently airing on wednesdays at 10 9 central on sci-fi SNL to air live nationally Saturday Night Live will be live for everyone for the remainder of season 42 NBC announced on Thursday that for the first time ever the late night sketch comedy program will air live in all time zones beginning on April 15th with host Jimmy Fallon each episode will air at 11.30pm Eastern, 10.30pm Central, 9.30pm Mountain and 8.30pm Pacific for the Mountain and Pacific zones SNL will be repeated at 11.30pm as well. In addition SNL Has announced hosts for the rest of its current season, including Chris Pine on May 6th, Sean Spicer impersonator extraordinaire Melissa McCarthy on May 13th, and Ballers Dwayne Johnson on May 20th, who will preside over the season 42 finale. SNL is enjoying its most popular season in two decades and is part of the national conversation, and we thought it would be a great idea to broadcast to the West and Mountain time zones live at the same time it's being seen in the East and Central time zones, says an NBC spokesperson. It also helps to do this with the way that TV is consumed on multiple screens and as an interactive experience, especially with shows like SNL on Facebook and Twitter. This will help make it a national and even global contender, much like live sports and its and its iterations on social media in the moment and live. I can see this being very successful for SNL. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, with that, I'm going to jump right into this week's Walking Dead, which was very much a setup episode to set up what needs to happen in the penultimate and finale episodes in the next two coming weeks so we're going to talk about the walking dead episode entitled the other side The saviors pay an unexpected visit to the hilltop, catching everyone by surprise. This time, they're planning on taking more than just supplies. Seven seasons into The Walking Dead, there are a few things that we all know about this show. One, if a character who rarely has lines suddenly has a bunch of them, they're toast. Two, if Daryl is in danger, we will worry as if he's going to be killed off, even though he's never going to be killed off. And three, no matter how well laid a plan is, it's going to go wrong. Terribly wrong. So, it wasn't at all surprising that in this week's episode, Sasha and Rosita's Plan to do away with Negan, hit a snag before they'd even really got started. Now a complaint all season from many viewers has been that for the better part of this season, The Walking Dead has given us episodes that run just a little too long. So the most unusual thing about this week's episode is that it was just a bit too short. It ends abruptly, but its ending doesn't feel so much like a cliffhanger as it does an editing mistake. Fortunately, that's the only thing that's really wrong about this episode. In most other respects, it does what The Walking Dead does best focus on characters trying to make some kind of connection with each other and primarily the focus of this week is on rosita and sasha who finally undertake their mission to assassinate negan along the way they wind up sharing more with each other than they probably ever did with abraham the man whose murder set them on this path the episode doesn't make it easy for either woman from rosita recognizing sasha's necklace as one she herself made for their late lover to sasha's last minute decision to lock herself in the sanctuary after eugene refuses to go with them them. it's filled with heart-wrenching moments that never felt forced but that instead expanded on what we already know about these women i'm not really a fan of either of these characters but this week's episode actually made me care about them and their survival something i've i would have never said even two weeks ago i have a feeling that this was sasha's episode saying goodbye to the walking dead now we'll probably see her alive for a few minutes at some point during the next two episodes but she'll be too busy fighting to get an emotional send-off in addition to the death scene when we do see her next so this was sasha's time to come to terms with the fact that this is her last day on earth and prepare to enter death with a clear conscience sasha joined the group way back in season three when she and her brother tyrese played by the always loved and talented chad coleman and some other survivors now all dead arrived at the prison Sasha is not unique in how everyone she's loved has died, but her losses have been especially traumatic. First was her kind-hearted boyfriend Bob Stuckey, who had his leg eaten by cannibals shortly before succumbing to a walker bite, and Sasha watched this happen. Then there was her brother, who was bitten by a walker. These deaths hardened her until Abraham broke down her walls, but then he was bludgeoned to death by Negan again while she watched helplessly. Which brings us to now. Sasha decided that self-taught explosive experts and jack-of-all-trades Rosita has more to offer the group than she does, so she locked Rosita out of the sanctuary and charged in alone, intent on putting a bullet in Negan's head. She's seeking revenge for Abraham, but perhaps she feels taking out Negan will help her atone for all the people she couldn't save, which is too bad because she's not going to take out Negan again. But will she possibly see Tyrese, Bob, and Abraham come back to her and tell her it's okay in her dying moment, that she had done her best, much like when Tyrese died? All we know is Sasha is not long for this world now that she is going off to star in Star Trek Discovery. This week's episode also did a lot to fix or repair the Rosita character. While nobody will ever make the mistake of thinking these women are friends, Rosita's anger and pain is too deep, but Rosita at least allowed herself to share something about who she is and where she came from with Sasha. And also with us the audience she explained how she's used men sexually to get close enough to learn their skills and that that's how she knows how to do so much it wasn't like that with Abraham though something we knew from their time together when they both were first introduced she cared about him and was happy he was happy even after he left her for Sasha the idiocy of their mission cannot be overstated however and it's going to create serious problems for Rick and his secret plan to go to war with the saviors Negan will know Sasha came from Alexandria and he's going to want to know where her gun came from then the saviors are going to go to alexandria looking for answers and they're going to be in the mood to dole out punishment sasha and rosita's actions won't thwart the war effort before it happens but they're going to force it to happen much before rick's ready and people are going to die from their hot-headedness it's very stupid on their part but it's going to progress this story much quicker than maybe anyone was expecting this will be where next week's penultimate episode goes more than likely in the end of the episode I mistakenly thought this week's episode was that penultimate episode and was surprised by this week's story until I realized my mistake. This week's episode also gave Maggie a chance to shine for the first time in many weeks. It turns out that Daryl is still overwhelmed with guilt over Glenn's death to the point where he can't even look Maggie in the eye. Eating his dinner outside like a wounded animal, then breaking into tears when he finally shares his feelings with her, he packs a lot of emotion into just a few scenes. But each of these scenes says as much about Maggie as it does about Daryl, especially when she begs him not to kill any of the saviors after they arrive at hilltop and pleads with him to help her win she's smart enough to play the long game and strong enough to compartmentalize her grief for the sake of both her friends and her unborn child if only gregory exhibited a fraction of her wisdom here he kowtows once more to simon though he does plead with him at the end not to take hilltop's medical doctor to replace the one negan murdered a couple weeks back after simon refuses to leave him his community's only physician there's a brief moment where the solitary Gregory winces in torment at the thought that his people have been more or less sentenced to death. And yeah, sure, it's possible he's only thinking of himself, but he could just as well be thinking of Maggie and her baby and the rest of his people. Of course, he comes off as a rat bastard just a few seconds later when he threatens to turn Jesus over to the saviors as he sips his tequila, apparently trying to adopt Simon's attitude. Whatever side of the fence Gregory ultimately winds up on, my guess is that he won't have much longer before he meets his end. And when he he does, Maggie's more than ready to lead his people. I love Maggie and I can't wait to see her shine as a leader. Last week Rick and Michonne talked about life after Negan and how Rick could only lead if Michonne was there with him and I kept thinking what about Maggie? She's the one you want in charge during peace. Sure, Rick is good for when life is hell, but Maggie could make it a real life worth living. That is where I want to see it go. Another aspect of this episode was Eugene refused to be saved by Sasha and Rosita. It's still not entirely clear after this episode if Eugene's increasing Allegiance to Negan is part of a long con to get revenge on the bat wielding man, or as it's really starting to look, he's fully converted to the other side. Either way, the safe space he's enjoying as a result of affixing his lips directly to Negan's butt may be in jeopardy now with the arrival of Harlan Carson, the doctor recruited from the hilltop to replace the other Carson doctor Negan chucked into an oven. Given that the new guy is about to enjoy easy access to the monster in chief and, like Eugene, has the kind of expertise Negan prizes, could eugene's status be at risk did he essentially sign his own death warrant by not allowing sasha and rosita to rescue him all i know for sure is that he'll have to prove himself useful to negan again or end up in the worker pool and we all know eugene won't survive there finally we learned this week well you learned if you are not a comic book reader that jesus is gay he casually confessed in a heart-to-heart moment with maggie that he's never really gotten close to anyone including boyfriends though it's the first mention of his sexuality on the show it's hardly a prop coming out that's because he didn't need to have one fans who really know they're walking dead know that jesus real name paul rovia is gay in the comic books sunday's reveal in fact was a long time coming and just as it played in the comics the details proved to have little bearing on how his story plays out however i have a crackpot theory that this may not be the case following the war with negan and the saviors i think jesus will take maggie's advice and start to get close to people again like he has already with the hilltop and maggie enid and sasha my theory is that after the war assuming they both survive jesus and daryl will start a relationship it has been a long-held belief by many fans that daryl is gay and has had a crush on rick knowing that it will never amount to anything since rick himself is not gay and loves daryl as a brother which i actually contend daryl reciprocates that same brotherly love my theory rather proposes that daryl and jesus will become close and eventually become a couple And with that bombshell of a theory, I think I'm going to move on to Star Wars Rebels and talk about the most hyped episode in this series history and whether or not it lived up to that hype as I discuss the Star Wars Rebel episode entitled Twin Sons." Reacting to a vision of Maul, Ezra defies Hera and Kanan to travel to a remote planet in hopes of stopping the former Sith Lord from carrying out his plan. This week's episode was the one I've been waiting for since December, when Rebels hinted at the return of Obi-Wan and a potential Obi-Wan-Maul confrontation, when Maul and Ezra both sought out answers through combining the Sith and Jedi holocrons and combining their power answered their ultimate desires. Disney XD knew we were all highly anticipating this episode, and the hype machine was in full force, being turned up to 11 the past few weeks leading up to the Obi-Wan Maul showdown in this episode. Maybe it was the overhyped nature of the episode. Maybe it was the actual fight lasted less than the time that Maul and Obi-Wan took getting into their fighting poses. Maybe it was the entire sequence was less than a minute with 38 seconds being the two warriors getting into their fighting style poses and the actual fight was a mere three seconds of lightsabers before Obi-Wan struck Maul down for the second and final time. More than likely, it was all of these factors that led to my disappointment with this sequence. Putting my disappointment in the battle between Obi-Wan and Maul aside, I want to focus on the best parts of the episode, mainly getting to see Obi-Wan in nearly full Alec Guinness mode and the conclusion of the Maul story. Maul was given a new life in the Star Wars Clone Wars series. His abrupt demise on Naboo and the Phantom Menace was rectified as he regained a bottom half, took control of his life, and pursued the ultimate painful vengeance upon Obi-Wan Kenobi. As long as we've known Maul after Episode 1, the driving force behind most of his actions has been about exacting revenge. We've followed his his journey for years now and watched him achieve a few successes but also a few failures he thought he could find a path back to the Sith lifestyle but when Darth Sidious slapped Maul down and killed his brother he had to let those ambitions go and he felt betrayed when he made his first appearance in Star Wars Rebels in the season 2 finale Twilight of the Apprentice he was almost pitiable why do I bring all of this up why review his past on this and the Clone Wars series mainly because I believe with all we've been through with Maul's character since the return on the Clone Wars we needed to see this end I didn't want the mystery of what happened to Maul to linger I didn't want to have discussions about where Maul could possibly be during the timeline of the original trilogy his journey needed to come to an end and what better way than by the hands of his nemesis and the entire counter between Maul and Obi-Wan was poetic even if it was criminally short it's been almost 30 years since their first duel and they've both changed Maul went into the face-off full of confidence And hubris, believing he would win. He even told Ezra he would be seeing him later. But the Obi Wan he found was different than the Obi Wan he knew during the Clone Wars. This Obi Wan is calmer, he has a purpose, and he's had a ton of time to meditate during his self imposed exile, and his fixation on Maul has diminished over the years. Whereas Maul has been thinking about Obi Wan on a regular basis, Obi Wan is the ex who's moved on, with Maul rarely crossing his mind. I think Maul was disappointed to find a very in control. Obi-Wan. It took Maul realizing Obi-Wan was on Tatooine with a mission, protecting something, no, someone, for Obi-Wan's switch to flip. As he activated his lightsaber, he wasn't enraged or angry, he was calm, like Qui-Gon had taught him so many years before. He just knew he needed to protect Luke. That kick started a duel with a whole lot of posing and very little action, as I've complained about numerous times already. Obi-Wan calmly took Maul down with one subtle strike, like he was batting away a mosquito. Did the Maul and even Obi-Wan fan in me want? a longer fight? Absolutely. Would it have served the story? Maybe, but probably not. It marked the contrast in their styles and beliefs, and Maul's last words were haunting. He believes the chosen one will avenge us. With all of my complaining this week, I've, I've failed to give credit where credit is due. Steven Stanton positively nailed the Alec Guinness-era Obi-Wan. He was a voice match and infused Obi-Wan's dialogue with wisdom and importance. Sam Witwer, who has voiced Maul since the Clone Wars, has added nuance and layer to the character and did so right to the finish and that last scene where we see a teenage Luke run across the desert and hearing Aunt Beru's voice that was the perfect emotional note to end the episode. As moving as the duel and its aftermath were it was only a small portion of the episode. Maybe three or so total minutes were devoted to the Obi-Wan and Maul meeting with the rest of the episode following Ezra and Chopper on Tatooine. It's not terribly surprising because Rebels always tracks at least one member of the Ghost crew throughout an episode. They didn't break the pattern for Ahsoka versus Vader and they didn't do it here either but the balance could have been much better. Ezra abandoned his team during their final preparations for the attack on Lothal. Given what we've seen of him evolving this season it it doesn't really track. If as Hera says he cares about Lothal more than anyone why leave? It was arrogant of him to think he could be of any use to Obi-Wan and that arrogance needs to be punished or rather there needs to be consequences for his actions either through the force or Hera smacking him down a peg or two or even a demotion in rank in the alliance also while this episode did give a few moments of growth for ezra i don't think it was worth having the majority of the episode focus on him also the writers made a huge mistake at the end of the episode when ezra ezra made it back to the base on adelon how were the first words out of his mouth not obi-wan kenobi is alive if ezra knows about the jedi on tatooine how does the whole rebellion not know maybe something happened off screen between kenobi and ezra with obi-wan asking his existence to be kept a secret but it was a distracting thread to leave dangling and if obi-wan did say something to ezra why not show it this was a huge misstep that can mean only one of two things they intentionally left it out for future plot development or someone at rebels really screwed up i'm hoping this was not an oversight and rather has plot development implications for the future so ultimately i was massively disappointed with the length and lack of lightsaber fighting in the battle and duel between obi-wan and maul in this episode but overall the development and the conclusion of the maul and obi-wan story in the episode made up for that. disappointment i'll leave it there for the week no supernatural this week or next as it has a two week hiatus so instead we're going to head directly into the streaming section with a review of the netflix original series medici's masters of florence with their eight episode first season Medici's Master of Florence is a televised drama series about the Medici dynasty set in the 15th century Florence, starring Dustin Hoffman as Giovanni di Bici de Medici, Richard Madden as Cosimo de Medici, and Stuart Martin as Lorenzo de Medici. The series is set in the 15th century Florence. The protagonist is Cosimo the Elder, who was elected head of the Florentine Republic in 1434. Cosimo has inherited the Bank of Medici from his father, Giovanni, who has been mysteriously poisoned through various flashbacks 20 years prior we are introduced to a florence at the time of giovanni and his relationship with his sons cosimo and lorenzo medici master of florence is the latest show from executive producer frank spotnitz whose previous credits include the man in the high castle and the x-files and nicholas meyer who wrote and directed star trek II: the wrath of khan set in the 15th century florence the show explores the medici dynasty a wealthy italian family who rose to political and later royal prominence thanks to the medici bank the largest in europe at the time. The family would go on to inspire and help fund the Italian Renaissance, produce several popes, and have incredible influence across Europe for hundreds of years. Starring Richard Madden, who played Robb Stark on Game of Thrones, Stuart Martin from Crossing Lines, and Dustin Hoffman, Medici was shot on location in Italy, which adds to its amazing visual style, a hallmark of Spotnitz's previous work. A look at the trailer provides us with a glimpse of a show which combines House of Cards political drama, Game of Thrones ambitious scope, and the Queen's dramatized take on real historical events. Personally, I couldn't wait to dive into this world and this series. Was I satisfied with what we got after 8 episodes? Yes and no. As artful as the premise sounds, the story is too dense, wrought with too many players and edited in such a way that it often feels rushed and thrown together. The dialogue is in English and almost all of the characters here speak with British accents except for Hoffman who seems to be doing a Brooklyn accent in historical pre-Renaissance Italy. It's also near impossible to render banking sexy no matter how many bodice ripping scenes you throw at the problem and there are many couple that with the beautiful scenery you have to give credit to the creators frank Spotnitz and nicholas mayer for at least trying to make the early world of loans and mortgages look pretty and as i said the cinematography landscape settings and costumes all look great as does the cgi used to remove the modern aspects of florence and return it to the pre-dome completion state of the early 1400s it's also worth noting the irony of a tender moment between Cosimo de medici played by Richard Madden and his father-in-law-to-be Alessandro Bardi, played by David Bradley since on Game of Thrones Bradley's Walder Frey slaughtered Madden's Rob Stark when he failed to marry his daughter. Considering how small a part Bradley's character ultimately plays in the series this had to be a Game of Thrones nod and I couldn't help but smile at its inclusion in the series Madden's only second series since leaving Game of Thrones. Spottnet's goal for the series was to tell the story of as he puts it one of the most important families in the history of Western Civilization. The Medici not only helped fund the Renaissance in the 15th century, but their massive economic power as bankers to the Pope changed the way people lived, creating economic opportunity for ordinary people when previously there were none. This series deals with all of that, but at its heart, it's a family saga, a love story, and a murder mystery about a son who has to sacrifice his dreams in order to fulfill the dreams of his father. During an interview at the RomaFest panel in 2015, Sputnitz stated, the season will be more thriller than historical saga we will begin the show with a what if because we don't know how Giovanni de Medici died one of the questions that haunts Cosimo is whether his father was murdered we've taken one big liberty which is to ask the question what if Giovanni de Medici was murdered there's no evidence that he was we, we couldn't find in fact determine how he died but asking this question allows us to create a narrative drive and a way into the story that we thought would interest all audiences not just those already interested in the Medici we wanted to make a series that would appeal to people whether they liked historical dramas or not ultimately and unfortunately i feel they fail in that regard the series boasts an exceptionally captivating historical premise sure but the series fails to capitalize on this advantage it never captures the real medici despite a talented cast masters of florence immediately unravels into becoming a soap opera set in the renaissance while some fictionalizing is to be expected the series goes too far to manufacture drama when the historical truth is much more entertaining than the fiction. Following that, what if murder conspiracy? This story focuses on Giovanni de Medici's son Cosimo's push to assert authority over the Florentine Republic. Through a series of flashbacks, we get a clear sense of the rocky relationship that Cosimo had with his wife Contessina and how he's long stood in the shadow of his overbearing parents. A great deal of attention is paid to the threat of rival families like the Albizzi, and we are shown a Cosimo who is very much going it alone. He was unable to trust even his brother Lorenzo, or to put his his faith and his abilities of his soft-spoken son Piero. This Cosimo is determined to gain power over the city, but we often find him at the helm of a ship taking on water. In reality, Giovanni de Medici did pave the way for the Medici patriarchs to use their unprecedented financial success to strategically bankroll Florence's position as the cradle of the Renaissance civilization. They were indeed masters of the 15th century who spun a captivating international web of social, cultural, political, and economic dominance. Ultimately, a fictional representation focusing on their struggles is far less engaging than the reality of their astonishing achievements they were masters of their own fate far more often than they were the victims of foul play like this series makes it seem in the series cosimo is a reluctant banker he is pressured to take on the family business although he wants to be an artist masters of florence changes the art historical timeline to suggest that brunelleschi's dome of for florence cathedral one of mankind's greatest feats of engineering was orchestrated by cosimo because he was trying to spite his less artistically inclined father. The people of Florence have little faith in the project and are quick to dismantle the dome when the Medici rivals convince them that the plague arriving in the city is punishment for the Medici's questionable morality. In reality, but beneath his modest surface, Cosimo was a ruthless Machiavellian power broker. Indeed, his facade was often transparent and he displayed his peacock feathers, so to speak, whenever he wished. The Medici were arguably history's greatest patrons to the arts. Driven by humanism, they used strategic patronage to elevate the family's position to took unquestionable dominance over the city giovanni funded brunelleschi's dome for instance to solidify the family's power and florentine pride rallied in support of the project if Cosimo were portrayed accurately in masters of florence as a shrewd political operator rather than an aspiring artist the series might offer a more complex treatment of its era than one framing the medicis as heroes and the Albizi as villains ultimately i could forgive this literary license if the series was less soap opery and more dramatic you know much less daytime soap this series also falls prey to a problem many historical works fall victim to these days that they impose current societal norms and customs on the past. This can be seen nowhere more clearly than with how the story deals with the wives of the Medici patriarchs. It's as if the writers so desperately wanted to find modern women in their historical source material that they proceeded to invent displays of feminism. But in truth, it would have been far more riveting to address the reality that women in the 15th century Florence did not have any visible political power and were most often effectively abandoned by their birth families after marriage. This, after all, was a republic, not an empire, and women are notoriously repressed in representative systems. In reality, Contesina and Cosimo had an amicable relationship, but they were not political partners. Renaissance marriages ran the full spectrum of emotions, and yes, there were many instances of unrequited love and requited affairs, but early modern marriages are fascinating for their stark difference from our modern institutions, not in spite of them. By manipulating them, they lose their luster on the screen. Consider the nuance and the stealth that Florentine women, in fact, used to successfully influence their husbands and sons. Is that not more dramatic than this entirely fictitious Contessina, who is shown as so brazen that she bangs on doors, lobbying for Medici interests, rides horseback clad in armor into the chamber of the signorita to negotiate her husband's stay of execution, and proclaims, uh, irritated, that there are more ways for a woman to be indispensable than just bearing children? I'm sorry Sorry to say, but not in 15th century aristocracy, there really were not. In terms of fealty to the time period, Masters of Florence is wildly off the mark. And that leaves me in a pickle reviewing this series because I really enjoyed it in the moment watching the story and there are definitely redeemable aspects of the series worth watching. The scenery, setting, and cinematography is worth the viewing in and of itself, but the plot and historical aspects of the series really tear it down for me. This is the first streaming section recommendation I cannot fully recommend in good conscience although I'd be reminisced if I did not tell you that this series did very well in Italy, averaging over 7 million viewers every night as it was broadcast on local network television there and has been renewed for a second season on Netflix that focuses on what spotniks describes as skipping ahead 20 years to the reign of Cosimo's grandson, Lorenzo de' Medici. He's an incredible figure, a true Renaissance man, and is hugely excited and dramatic story. And I will definitely be watching the second season, but as a reviewer, I can only say I cannot give this a full endorsement for this series, much like I did with Berlin Station making a murderer in the OA before it on this section. So take what you will with that because I think it was fun to watch. I I enjoyed it, but there were definite problems with this series. So go into it with your eyes open. And that's where I'm gonna leave that. And we're gonna move into the closing now. On next week's episode, we'll continue with the spring twenty seventeen TV season with a review of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, and another streaming recommendation along with more news with Nico, but no Supernatural as it takes another week hiatus. Also, DC Nation continues with episodes of Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow, but still no Gotham as it's on its three-month hiatus, so make sure to join us for that as well. Also, make sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of Marvel Cinematic and Television universes. But for now and much of the season, let's roll Dan's pre-recorded closing.
0: Get at Across the Airways podcast. Get website. Across the Airways dot com. Again, that's you can check out all of our podcast shows available as their own individual programs in the iTunes store, in the Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, Color network. We have the DC Nation podcast located at DC Nation dot across dot com. That's DC Nation dot across dot com, which reviews popular DC comics related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvel verse podcast located at Marvel verse podcast dot across dot That's .acrosstheairways.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have ThronesCast, a podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as the Big Bang Theory, Got the Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, Got the Marvelverse podcast, Got the Mixed Radio Station, Code by Jack Stifles, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. Got if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, Got the Windows Marketplace, and a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Guys, for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, Got the TV show's we review find suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at across the airwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's across the airwaves at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, gotacrosstheairwaves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, plus Go leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363 Get at 773-809-3363 Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject Applied, if you are sending us glister feedback you want us to read, God the Air. God would also recommend that, that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies get television events. Go along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic Con. it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic Con special.
1: Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy, Wukim, Joshua Mercury, James Hafel, Steve Nostro, Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Rystek, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways see you guys and thanks for joining us for another episode of ata covering walking dead star wars rebels and there's new streaming section see ya
0: to our regularly scheduled program.